0: and we were all going directly the other way. Charles Dickens, From A Tale of Two Cities. Words that really summed up well the time that Ruth and Naomi were living in. If you read back through the book of Judges, uh, which is the book that kind of surrounds Ruth, it was like a roller coaster ride. It was full of ups and downs, twists and turns. And through it all, God was constantly right there, riding the ship right constantly working and reworking the poor decisions of Israel the poor decisions that they were making reworking them to conform to his will and the story of Ruth is really no different and last week we talked about Naomi's wrong decision her wrong counsel and her wrong attitude and this week she starts off again on the wrong foot So let's jump right into the passage. We're going to pick up where we left off last week at Ruth chapter 1, verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she, Naomi, said to her, Go, my daughter. Let's pause right there for a minute. Something that you have to understand about the book of Ruth is it's, it's a short book, but there's all sorts of information, all sorts of things packed into every single verse. And some of that early on is foreshadowing. If you're familiar with the book of Ruth, you already know what's coming down the road, but God's providence and God's provision can be seen all through this book. Everywhere you look, you see God's providence and God's provision. And we're introduced to a new character right away in chapter 2, Boaz. Boaz was a relative of Naomi's. We're told that he was from the clan of Elimelech, and he's described as a worthy man which likely means that he was a, means, a man of means, he was a man of wealth, or at the very least he had some land. But more than that, he was a man of noble character. And his, his name meant in him is strength. These are the tools that the writer of Ruth is using to, to build this story as we move forward through the book of Ruth. The second thing in these first verses, in verse 2, is one of the laws that's been put into place to care for foreigners and widows. Right, after the Israelites had left Egypt and they were preparing to enter the promised land, God commanded the Israelites to leave the edges of their fields unharvested, to leave any grain that had dropped uh, behind while they were harvesting, and, and to not return to the fields to pick up anything that had been forgotten. If they left it there, you're out of luck. You've got to leave it behind. It's for those who are the least in the lost. It's for those who are the scraps were left for the poor, the fatherless, the widows, and the sojourners so that they could glean from them. It is one of the many ways that God provided. And the word sojourners represented people who didn't belong to the nation of Israel. The Jewish people, although they were called to be set apart, although they were called to be holy, Although they were called to to not really have anything to do with the people around them, they were also called to be kind and gracious to those who were foreigners and displaced among them. Right, Just as they had been foreign and, and displaced in Egypt, which I think raises a great question for us, how well do we provide for the least and the lost? How well do we as Christians do in caring for those among us who are unable or are struggling to provide for themselves for one reason or another. And sometimes I think this question is just as much, if not more, about the posture of our heart than it is about our actions. Because as a church, there is a lot that we do to support our community, to support those in our community who are struggling. When you think about it, we, we support the homeless shelter. We have the King's Storehouse. We do the backpack program, there's our deacons fund, all sorts of different things that we do to help those who are struggling. But what are our attitudes toward the poor, the homeless, those struggling with mental illness, uh, the drug and alcohol addicted, and the illegal immigrant when we leave this building? Right? It's, it's easy at times to write some of those off and to say, well, they got themselves into the mess they're in, they can work themselves Out of it, or they're breaking the law, it's not my responsibility to support them. But when you look at the example that was set in the Bible, here we have Naomi, whose family forsook God, who separated themselves from their people. Potentially, as a result, she lost her husband and her sons, her means of provision, and still. Even though they turned their back on God and their people, still God provided. Amen. Right? They did everything wrong. Amen. And not just what was wrong according to the land, according to the law, but was what was wrong according to God. Amen. And as we're about to find out, there was still grace for them in abundance. Amen. The last thing that we can pick up in verse 2 is something that becomes key to this passage, and that is willingness. Willingness. Up to this point, Naomi has had a very poor attitude. And in fairness, who wouldn't? After going through what Naomi went through, who wouldn't have a bad attitude, right? They sold their land. They moved to another country. Her husband and sons, who more than likely made that decision for her, died. And now she's a widow, right? A widow struggling to survive. And in all fairness, I think it would be pretty hard for me in that position to not be sitting squarely in the same shoes that Naomi finds herself in. I think I would be pretty bitter. I'd be frustrated. I'd be angry. And then on the other hand, you have Ruth. You have Ruth who who left her parents to marry a foreigner who died soon after and moved with her mother-in-law to a new country with no idea of what was yet to come. She had her whole life in front of her, and she made the, poten- the, the, the decision, potentially, to throw it all away. Throw all of that away out of love for her mother in law. Mm-hmm. Faced with the option to sit and wait, Naomi chooses to do nothing. <laughs> she chooses to, to be at home and do nothing, not even suggesting to Ruth, go glean in the fields, right? And Ruth decides on her own, of her own volition, to go and glean in the fields as a helpless, female minority in a land that was not her own and all Naomi had to say was go my daughter I mean come on Naomi is that is that really is that really all you've got to say right where's the encouragement where's the excitement in all likelihood Naomi was beyond the age that she was really going to be effective helping out in the fields but she could have been a little more proactive right And giving Ruth the names of some family, maybe, or some direction of of where to go. But no, all she does is is a simple, go, my daughter. Ruth was willing to go and to put herself out there, while Naomi continued to be stuck in her despair and in her bitterness. Ruth's attitude of willingness unlocked all the blessings and all the opportunity to come that we're going to see here in the next few verses and chapters. So let's keep reading. This is picking back up at verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the Moabite woman, the one who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged my young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from the, young, from the water that the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All you have done for your mother-in-law Since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before, the Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though... I am not one of your servants. Let's stop right there for a minute. Before we jump into the grace that's being shown to Ruth through Boaz, we need to talk about the providence of God that we're seeing in this passage. In verse three, right away the ESV says, "And she happened to come." or she happened to come to the field of Boaz, but a more accurate you know, Hebrew translation would say something like, "In her chance, chanced upon." Right, the writer is trying to make this statement that it almost sounds a bit sarcastic. Like you you can kind of hear it, right? She just happened to come to the field of Boaz. She just she just happened to find her way there just by chance. Right? Not not so much. The narrative is trying to direct our attention to the bigger picture, which is the providence of God at work in this supposed Chance encounter as a reminder that God is constantly behind the scenes working with us, in us, and for us. In Mark 16, we see Jesus' ascension. And immediately after, in verse 20, it says, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord with them worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Now the I'm sure I've I've read that dozens of times and never really caught while the Lord worked that with them, even though the verse before this it tells us Jesus had ascended. Right? He's not physically standing shoulder to shoulder with them doing miracles right now. They're doing his ministry, and the power of Christ is accompanying them in that ministry. It's no different for us. God is working with us in the pursuit of his will, even though physically we're not standing shoulder to shoulder with him. In Philippians 2, 12 through 13, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Sometimes it feels like it's a constant struggle to do God's will, right? That there's constantly something pushing back against what it feels like should happen naturally. Right, we know what God's will is. We know what he's supposed to do. And it still feels like constantly there's something pushing back, something holding us back from that. It's the sin nature that we're born with. Amen. And it's a real struggle. Right? It doesn't give up its hold that easily, but Paul is clear that Christ is at work in us to bring his will to fruition. Amen. And in Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who God loved, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Right? God is fighting for us. Just like he is at work in the Ruth, the story of Ruth in all of the terrible circumstances that we see in life. Right? He's at work in all of those circumstances to to bring back around for good. And it may not appear to be good right at this moment, but down the road, beyond what we're able to see in our own human understanding, beyond what we can see right now, beyond the circumstances we're living in currently, there is peace and blessing that can only be found in Christ by those who have been called to his purpose and those who have surrendered their lives to live according to that purpose. Amen. This, that's the story that we begin to see here in Ruth. But it's also the story that we're able to see played out in our own lives. As we look on and we process our lives in faith, we can see the way that God is at work in us, with us, and for us. As you continue to look at this passage in verses 4 through 13 and beyond, we see Boaz showing Ruth Unparalleled, at least to this point, unparalleled grace. So let's look at some of those ways that Ruth was experiencing grace through Boaz. The first one is that Boaz took the initiative. Boaz took the initiative. Boaz comes out to the field. He sees a beautiful young female foreigner, and he says to his manager, who does this woman belong to? He wants to know where she came from. What's she doing in his field? And after getting a little bit of the backstory, he approaches Ruth in two verse eight, and he says, Then Boaz said to her, It's this simple but profound statement. Right? Boaz didn't know who Ruth was. He had to ask somebody else who she was. He had no idea. And yet he had compassion and grace. He had some semblance already of love for Ruth, even though he really didn't know who she was. He took the initiative, he made the first move, just as God made the first move towards us. Right? For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, and would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Romans 5, 6 through 10. God made that first move towards us, even in our wretchedness even as enemies of the faith, even as enemies of God, still he came for us. He came to save us for himself. The second way that we see Boaz showing grace is by the simple act that he spoke to Ruth. Boaz spoke to Ruth. I know some of these examples of grace don't read real well in the current culture that we live in. (laughs) The idea that Boaz speaking to Ruth is a way of showing her grace Uh, is a bit different, right? (laughs) That wouldn't be considered grace now, but in the patriarchal Hebrew society, it was a big deal that Boaz, a pure-blooded Jewish man, was speaking to Ruth, a young, widowed female immigrant. Boaz interrupted his day. He interrupted what he was doing to approach this this woman. He wasn't in the field because Ruth was there. He was in the field to check up on his workers. He was, up, he was in the field to make sure that the harvest was going well. He was there to work. But he, he met this woman, and he, he checked up on her. He, he, he took the time to talk to her. He interrupted his day to make sure that Ruth was doing okay. Amen. Third, Boaz promised her protection and provision. Not only did he allow her to glean as the custom and and the Jewish law stated, but he charged his young men not to touch her. He told her to continue harvesting in in his fields for the remainder of the harvest and for future harvests. He even invited her to sit at his table and eat and drink uh, from his workers' food sources, from their water sources. He went above and beyond to offer protection and provision. he He didn't stop at at the end of the law. He didn't, he didn't do the bare minimum. He went above and beyond and gave as much as possible. He even told his workers to leave some behind of the best of the best. Amen. Ephesians 2, 4-10 through 10 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The parallels between what Ruth experienced from Boaz and what we experience in Christ could not be more perfect. She pulled up from being a a destitute widow to becoming an honored guest, able to sit and eat with the owner of the fields. Right? When, When we were lost in our sin, with no hope of eternity in heaven. Christ died for us so that by faith we could be saved. And not only that, but now he's, he's raised us up with him to be seated with him in the heavenly places. He did more, right? More than just saving us. He, he raised us up to be the sons and the daughters of God. Not just servants. Not just workers but be, to be members of the household. And the fourth way that we see Boaz show Ruth grace is through his encouragement of Ruth. When she couldn't understand his grace, when she was in awe of his generosity, she bowed before him and asked, "Why? Why me?" And Boaz explained that that he had seen the good that she was doing, the love that she had for her mother-in-law, that he hoped she would be blessed, that she would find favor in the Lord for her good works. Here's the thing. At this point in the story, Ruth is is not even in the home stretch yet. Right? She's she's not in the home. She has some food. That's great. She's had a good day, yes. But when she goes home, very little has changed. Right? She spent a great day working out in the fields. She had something to eat. She got a little bit to take home. But really, in the grand scheme of things, very little has changed about her circumstances. She's still poor. She's still a widow, and she's still an immigrant. None of that has changed. What's shifted, though, is she's gone from seeing her situation in light of her misfortune to seeing her situation in light of Boaz's generosity. And that's a significant shift. Nothing has changed but the way she's seen her circumstances. She's beginning to have this this glimmer of hope that they're going to make it. They're going to make it, not because of her ability, not because she deserves it, not because something significant changed, but because of Boaz. Because Boaz, despite having every reason to not help Ruth, he's still shown favor on her. And sometimes a simple shift in perspective is all the change that we need. Hebrews 12, 1-2 says, Let us lay aside every weight. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, looking to Jesus is the key. Look at all the terrible circumstances around us. Look at how life is a struggle, and we're bound to stumble. We're bound to want to give up. We're we're bound to be stuck in those circumstances. Right? Believe that we're not good enough because, in reality, we're not good enough. Amen. We're not. But keep our eyes focused on Christ and we realize that it doesn't matter that we're undeserving. It doesn't matter that we're unable because, in the vastness of his rich mercy and love, it doesn't matter because the one fighting for us is far greater. So remember back to where we started. Right? Ruth taking some initiative right in her willingness. She went to go find some provision. Right? Any attempt was better than staying back at home doing nothing. And then on the other hand, you have Naomi, who was bitter and depressed, not contributing a whole lot. That's where we started this morning. That's where the story started. Now, Ruth has had a great day, and we pick back up at verse 17. And it says, So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an effer of barley, which, for reference, is about six gallons. That's more than enough for two people. <laughs> I don't know how many, how many loaves of bread that makes, but it's got to be a lot. She took it up and she went into the city. Her mother in law saw that she had what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Right, the surprises for Naomi just kept coming. And her mother in law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother in law, with whom she had worked, and she said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter in law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And then Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi replied to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. You know, Bethlehem must have been a real shady place. When you read through Ruth, there's a lot of talk about assault. (laughs) Must have been a pretty shady place. Anyways, so Ruth kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. All of a sudden we see Naomi's hope begin to shift. Ruth's began shifting when she received all the grace she saw in the fields, which wouldn't have happened had she not been willing to go. And Naomi waited at home all day, focused on her situation, focused on her circumstances, until Ruth returned with a pile of food and the good news that she had met Boaz, which was a big deal to her, but was an even bigger deal to Naomi. Naomi because she now knew that there was potential that their land could be redeemed. A kinsman redeemer was someone in the family who could pay a fee to redeem the lost property of family members. And unbeknownst to Ruth, Boaz was a redeemer of her family. Yet one more example of God's providence woven into the fabric of this story. The power of hope changed everything for Naomi. Right? She went from being bitter and depressed to now all of a sudden having a glimmer of hope in her circumstances being completely shifted. The American agnostic lecturer Robert Ingersoll called hope the only universal liar who never loses his reputation for veracity, meaning that hope is, is the only lie that is constantly counted to be true. and. That's not a, not a great outlook, right? Not a great outlook. But on the flip side, Norman Cousins, who miraculously survived an almost incurable illness and a heart attack, said the human body experiences a powerful gravitational pull in the direction of hope. That's why the patient's hopes are the physician's secret weapon. They are the hidden ingredient in any prescription. I had a roommate in college who used to say, I can't get sick. All the time, he would say, I, I can't get sick. It's impossible. He refused to take medicine. <laughs> but against all odds, he was almost never sick. I don't know that in the time I've known him for the last 10, 12 years, whatever it's been, he's been sick maybe a handful of times. He claimed that it was, it was all in your head, right? Just believe you can't get sick and take care of yourself and you won't get sick. Now, I think we would all acknowledge that that isn't entirely true. <laughs> because we live in a fallen world, sickness is not completely avoidable. Sometimes our circumstances are beyond our control, but there is also some truth to the power of a positive outlook. The hope that we're talking about isn't, it's not just some optimistic feeling when it comes to getting sick or believing in fantasies, but the hope that is found in Christ who makes the promises of our future abundantly clear. Romans 8:23 tells us that we have the first fruits of the spirit. Amen. Right the initial feeling and the empowerment of the spirit as we wait for adoption as sons and daughters and the redemption of our bodies. And Jeremiah 29:11 through 13 a, while the Israelites were, you know, once again, you know, if you read the Old Testament, the Israelites were constantly at battle, in exile, losing their land, getting back into the land. And Jeremiah, again, they're in exile, separated from their land, unable to worship their God freely. And the prophet tells the people God's word. He says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Is that not a beautiful picture? And it's part of what part of what makes it beautiful is that it's not some delusional idea of hope. Because the Israelites are living in terrible circumstances. Everything has gone wrong for them. They have to be full of frustration. And the prophet could not be more clear. Keep seeking, keep praying. Keep asking, keep calling out, keep looking after God. The end is just over the horizon. This is all going to be resolved, and now we have the right, hindsight twenty is twenty twenty. Christ has brought that promise to completion. Keep your eyes up, keep them focused on God, because the provision that you need is found in Him, even if it isn't in our t- desired timeline. So how does this all apply? I think probably some of that's fairly clear. You may already be thinking of applications to certain circumstances in your mind. But I think it takes being honest enough with ourselves to understand whose shoes we're standing in. Are we standing in Naomi's shoes? Are we a Ruth? Are we a, a Boaz? And probably as you think back through life and you think about each of those characters, at different times you find yourself in each of the sets of shoes. So the first question, or the first challenge is this. Is your life characterized by willingness? Is your life characterized by willingness? Warren Wiersbe said, one person trusting the Lord and obeying his will can change the situation from defeat to victory. That's exactly what happened in this story. Exactly what happened. Ruth had to take the first step of willingness. She had to leave home without knowing the outcome She had to leave knowing that there was a possibility she could be attacked, she could be turned away, she could be raped, she could be beaten because she was a foreigner in a land that was not her own. And ultimately she found the blessing in Boaz. The first step of willingness led her to Naomi's hope. Are you willing to respond and follow God's will when he calls? When it requires giving up time, money, relationships, reputation, are you willing to stick your neck out for God's will? Maybe it's the willingness to step into the unknown and to pursue God, even though you may have no idea what the outcome is going to be. Even though you may not see any reason that he should answer or have any idea what that final result is going to be, maybe it's just a simple willingness to step into the unknown. Second way that we can apply this, accept grace and give grace abundantly. Accept grace and give grace abundantly. And I think that poses a very natural question Have you accepted God's grace yet? Maybe you've never put your faith in Christ, and today is that day, right? God sent His one and only Son to die for us so that we could be saved from our sins not by our own works, not by what we can do, but simply based on who God is and the grace and the love that he has for us and the fact that he is willing to deny himself to save us. Are you willing to submit your will to him and to follow him? If that's you this morning, don't delay. Don't wait any longer. In a moment when we pray, give your life to him. Tell him simply, God, today I'm putting my faith in you. I'm accepting your grace through the work of Christ because I need to be redeemed from my sin and I need to be made a new creation and only you can do that. And maybe you're somebody who's already put your faith in Christ. Do you allow yourself grace? Some of us are terrible about giving ourselves grace. We're still bound to mess up. We're still bound to fall short. When that happens, do you allow yourself to be stuck in that? Knock it off. Just stop it. Right? Give yourself some grace. It isn't necessary to keep yourself down, to hold yourself down, to feel constant guilt. Amen. Our salvation is not based in our works. Amen. It is based in the grace that's given to us from God. Amen. And because of that grace, let's be people who are characterized by grace. Amen. A people who reaches out to provide for others in whatever provision that might need to be whether it's a healthy attitude, it's a loving people who, by all means, and all human perspective, don't deserve it. We didn't deserve it, but God gave us love anyways, right? Let us be a people that's characterized by grace. And the third thing is simple. Be hopeful. Be hopeful. Be a people who's characterized by hope. Not delusional, but Hopeful. 1 Peter, 3, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Our hope is not found here on earth. Our hope is not in the things that we get. It's not in good circumstances. Our hope is in an inner sense of joyful assurance and confidence as we trust God's promises, as we face the future with his promises in mind, with that assurance of who he is in the worst of our circumstances. So if hope is something that you struggle with, as I do at times, make the words of Romans fifteen thirteen your prayer this morning. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. As a reminder, that our hope is not in anything that we're able to do, but it's a gift of the immeasurable riches of Christ. And that that verse, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray. God, you are an amazing God, worthy of our praise, worthy of every bit of it and more than what we can give you. You've given us grace in so many ways, grace that we don't deserve, grace that is beyond comprehension. I pray that as we see these words, as we read through Ruth, that we would continue to grasp exactly who it is that you are, exactly what it is that your will for a life is. And I pray that as we respond to your Holy Spirit, as we're impacted by those words, that we would take the words beyond these doors. That the grace that characterizes you would characterize us and that the people who surround us would experience that. God, you are an amazing God. I pray this morning for anybody who is struggling to find hope. Anybody who's had difficult circumstances, maybe it's been one thing after another, after another, after another. And hope seems beyond the horizon. It seems beyond grasp. God, I pray this morning that you would reach out to them, that you would touch them with your Holy Spirit. That you would fill them in a way that they have never been filled before with the assurance of your peace and your love. The assurance that we have a hope of a future, whether it's in this lifetime or it's in heaven with you, God. I pray that blessing over all of us this morning. You hear me pray? Amen.